A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Whitney, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's my pleasure. So Whitney, tell me, what's life about? (laughs) Oh, way to stump people right out of the gate, Brian. Um, So I, I would say life is about learning. Um, I think we were born to be learning machines. I think we're here to learn how to do good and to be good. Um, For me, there's an a priori assumption that we existed. There's an essence of us that existed before we were born. And in my particular case, I believe that we are born as children of God. And so we're here um, in this life to learn how to be better children of God. And then after this life, we'll continue on as who we are. I'll continue to be Whitney. You'll continue to be Brian. And so we're here to learn. Um, It's like going to college and it's going to be really challenging and really tough. And we're going to get an A if we try our best to learn and to do good and be good. And so that for me is what life is about is how do I learn? um, How do I help the people around me that I love, and maybe even the people that I don't love to learn and to um, basically figure out who we really are and what we were meant to do? Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you. Mind if I borrow your answer for <laughs> parts of your answer going Feel forward? I love that. <laughs> free. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Whitney, when someone asks you who you are and what you do, what do you tell them? Mm. Well, I think it depends on who I'm talking to. So if it's in a professional context, um, I will say to people, I help you become a boss people want to work for, um, or I help you and your company manage through change. How I, I help you figure out how to avoid being disrupted. So that's in a professional context if I meet someone and they say, what do you do? Um, if, some, if I meet someone and they want to know more about me and who I am, I'll say things like, I, am, I live in like Virginia, though I originally grew up in San Jose, California. I was born in Madrid, Spain. I'm married. I have two children. Um, I love my work. I love to read. I love tennis. I'm not very good, but I want to be good. And then I talk about books that I'm reading um, because I love to read as well. Well, that's one of the things that I've loved talking is books about books you're reading, books you've written, (laughs) books you were writing at the time. And your new book, Build an A-Team, just came out this week which is really cool. Congratulations on that. And I, I understand it's at the top of the charts in Amazon right now in a couple different categories. Thank you. I'm so excited. It was really, 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 I mean, you, it's like you check it constantly. And, and we're all supposed to say that we don't because they're vanity metrics, but you still do check it. So thank you. <laughs> no, that's great. So you have a background in music, Right. And I've been in the room when you've played the piano. So I know you're a talented musician. And I also know that you're the world's leading expert on disruption. And that's maybe not um, like a logical path. (laughs) Will you tell me a little bit about your journey? Just um, knowing now you're in New York and you've worked with Clayton Christensen and now you're a three time author and you're working around the world with leaders and CEOs. Tell me, tell me how this transformation happened. Yeah. So, um, so like I said a moment ago, I grew up in San Jose, California and very, um, solidly middle-class background. I'm the oldest of four children, which I didn't say earlier. And I, um, was, 
always wanted to work really hard, very determined, very ambitious, but I was a girl, so I couldn't really say I was ambitious. So I had to pretend like I wasn't ambitious. And so, um, you know, in high school, I did things like wanted to get straight A's, but focused on being a cheerleader, got to college, had no idea what I was going to study because I was a girl and I was going to get married and that's all I was going to do. And, and one of the things that happened is I go to college, I major in music because my mom pretty much wanted me to. But then when I graduated from college, at this point, I was married and my husband and I moved to New York. And he was getting his PhD in microbiology. And I knew I didn't want to do anything in music. And so and I also knew that I had to work because we needed food on the table because food is actually a really good thing. And so I went out to get a job and the best job I could get was as a secretary. I was working um, because I was a female, because I had a degree in music, um, because it was the late 80s. And so I worked for a retail broker um, on Wall Street. It was um, 13 45 Avenue of the Americas at 6th Avenue between 53rd and 54th. And as I started working, I started to make this discovery, which was Wall Street was really exciting. And I think also because I was now married, I'd kind of checked that box off some of that ambition that had lain dormant, I was allowed to somehow allow it to come out. And besides, I needed to work. So why make x if I can make 10x. And so this was really an, uh, an awakening, if you will, for me, where I saw all these people working on Wall Street, I saw a lot of guys sitting across from me, they were retail brokers, and you know, saying things like, doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this is a great stock idea, or throw down your pom poms and get in the game. And for me, that was particularly poignant, because I had been a cheerleader, and I was kind of offended. But also, there was this meta experience that I was having where I needed to throw down my pom-poms and get in the game. And so I started taking business courses at night and started um, and and then had a boss who allowed me to and helped me move from being um, a secretary to an investment banker. And from there, I just worked really hard and I did banking and then I had a boss get fired. And so I got moved and basically was disrupted and moved into equity research, did that for about eight years started having our children, disrupted myself this time, connected with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, um, who is known for disruption, disruptive innovation. He wrote The Innovator's Dilemma and co-founded an investment firm with him and where we were investing in privately excuse me, privately owned companies and publicly traded securities, all of which were disrupted. But the big aha that I then had as we were doing all this work together was that it wasn't companies that disrupt, that it's people who do. And so for the last five years, I've just been researching and codifying and thinking through what does a framework of personal disruption look like? How do you take these ideas and this theory and apply it to people? And in applying it to people, how does that, how does you disrupting yourself actually allow your organization that you work for or the organization in which you are embedded to be disruptive and be competitive. So, so as you disrupt yourself, you're helping the people you work for be disruptors. I think that's such an interesting perspective because, you know, as we know, change is inevitable. And that's just seems to be a law of the universe. But improvement is certainly not a given right? And innovation is certainly not a given, right? So it's like wow. most of us, perhaps many people anyway, are kind of just going through life, doing whatever they're doing. And if they're not consciously, like I think you, your message is very essential. If you're not going to disrupt yourself, you're going to be disrupted. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? right. Why, why is this? I mean, obviously you've lived this as you just described, but why is this idea important to you. I mean, why I, I look at you as an evangelist, hmm. right, for this this concept of, of conscious disruption, intentional disruption. But I'm interested to know why why does this idea matter so much to you? Yeah, you know, Brian, that's such a good question, right? Because we I remember there was a um a quote by David Brooks um, that I just love, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said that so many of us find, want to figure out what our calling in life is, you know, what it is that we're meant to do. And he said, you know, it doesn't usually work that way is you just get out there and you start 
you start trying to figure things out and then a problem finds you, a problem that you have to solve. And I don't know why for sure, um, why this speaks to me so deeply. I think part of it is, is that I know change is important and I know that I don't want to feel stuck. Like stuck is like the worst thing that I could ever feel. And so, but it's also been very difficult for me to figure out how to change and how to improve myself because that is something that I just absolutely must do. And so this ability to be able to maybe make it safer for people to change and certainly maybe not, and maybe you can't make it safer, but to say to people, here's a framework, here's what it looks like. And by the way, I'm here for you. If it feels scary, if it feels lonely, you're on the right path to disruption. So I'm going to help walk you through it. And, and I believe that so much of um, so many problems could be solved both individually and certainly societally. If we are willing to change ourselves, change is contagious. And so as I'm willing to disrupt myself for the better, then it makes it more possible for the people around me to do the same. And so I, when I say companies don't disrupt, people do. I really believe that the world doesn't change, but we change one, the world changes one person at a time. Yeah, I, I love that. And in fact, one of my previous guests, David G, talks about we transform the world by transforming ourselves. Bingo. His, Bingo. So I, I think that's such a great, such a great perspective. And as I read Build an A-Team, there's this concept that I know you've been speaking about for a while that I hadn't understood this S-curve mm. that E.M. Rogers popularized back in, what, the 50s, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing to get this as a concept, and it's another to see it in your own life or to understand and apply it. And and to be honest, um, I think I saw this a little bit just this last last couple of weeks. I have an assistant who I love, who's been with me six years, and she's about to take another role in our organization. And I'm, and as I read your book, I'm like, oh, she was at the top of the S curve. <laughs> will you, and I, it wasn't anything that had even occurred to me, but will you talk for just a moment about what the S curve is and how we can use it as leaders to, as you say, to be a boss that people love to work for? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you just mentioned, this was popularized by E.M. Rogers, and it it was um, originally meant to help you figure out how quickly an innovation will be adopted. And we used it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clayton to help us identify investment opportunities. The big aha that I had was that you could use this S-curve to help you understand the psychology of disruption, to understand the psychology of change, and and in fact, learning. And so I've reimagined it as the S curve of learning. And so if you can picture in your mind for just a moment, if you're, if you don't have this in front of you, you picture this S and at the bottom of the S, every time you start something new, it can be a new role, a new job, a new project, whatever it is, the bottom of the S, a lot of time is going to pass and it's going to feel like nothing is happening. This is the error area of inexperience. Um, It typically lasts for six months to a year. So you're going to come home from work every day thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing, I should quit my job. No, it's just that you don't know what you're doing. And your brain hasn't been able to sort out all the disparate pieces of information that have are coming at you, and you haven't been able to make sense of those yet. So that's the low end of the learning curve. And then after six months to a year, in a role in particular, and and thinking about um, your assistant, you move into the knee of the curve. And that's the part where you start to tip into the steep part of the curve where very little time passes and lots happens. This is the area where you're competent with that comes confidence. And it also comes engagement because you know enough, but not too much. Again, think about that jumble of pieces, you're starting to put enough pieces together that you're making sense of things, but you haven't made complete sense. So it's still really fun. There's some novelty to it. And then you get to the top of the S. That's after you've been in a role for four years. Typically, people um, can stay on one learning curve for about four years. That's on average before it's time to jump. So you actually got more time out of your assistant than most people do. And once you get to the top, you become this master. You're great at what you do. Um, but it also means that you're bored because your brain's not learning anymore. You've figured it out. And so this is that danger zone where you think, oh, my employee is a master. I'll just leave them. No, 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 no. You can for maybe six months. But after that, 
you've got to allow them to jump to a new learning curve. And so what I, what I explained as I'm working with organizations is that every single person on your team in your company is on a learning curve, including you, and you optimize for innovation, you're an organization that can manage through change, by at any given time, having 70% of your people in the sweet spot, that steep part of the learning curve, 15% of your people at the low end where they're inexperienced, but they're also asking some really good questions. And then 15% of your people at the high end, where they know everything, and they're a little bit bored, but they also can set the pace for people and, and facilitate collaboration for people coming along. And when you're able to optimize in that way, you've got people who are maximally engaged, and a, and a team and an organization that can be innovative. And, and basically, you are in it, you're lowering your we're about to be disrupted score. Yeah. See, I think that's such a cool way to think about about ourselves or a team, and it, it can inform hiring decisions, you know, career paths, like these kinds of things. And and I also love that you take this out of the realm of theory, and you you offer a diagnostic. I do right on and go through and evaluate themselves and get clear, like how is this? So, um, yeah. And one thing you talk about as well, I think, is really interesting. I'd love to hear you just share a little more about it, which is this idea that what holds us back is actually what propels us forward. Mm. Right. What, and will you talk about that for a little bit? I've heard you as I, as I watched your Ted talks and a couple other videos I saw online that this was something that came up a couple different ways. You talked a little bit about constraints as a part of our learning curve, you know, this kind of thing, but will you, will you tell me a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm fascinated by paradox mm. <laughs> and this, and this, this is a paradox, is right? a paradox. What, what holds us back is what propels us forward. Absolutely. So tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. So what's interesting is that when you get into that sweet spot of the curve, um, what you actually, you know, it's, it's easy with your people who are in that sweet spot. You're like, they're doing a great job. Let's, you know, let's just keep them going. And yet, in order to have the momentum that they need to climb the curve, they need friction. Um, we know from the law of physics that without friction, nothing moves. And it's the same for people who are in the sweet spot. In order to be able to go up that steep back of the curve, you need friction. And that comes in the form of constraints. It comes in the form of challenges. It comes in the form of stretch assignments. And what's interesting about that is that the research has shown is that we tend to be reluctant to give people stretch assignments because we're afraid that they'll fail. And yet they can't climb the curve unless you're willing to give them something where there's the real risk of failure. And, and just to illustrate this, so, so you have an idea um, from a, from a, a visual or, or metaphorical standpoint, or practical standpoint, I guess actually all three, um, there, the, the, the film Jaws, we all know Jaws, right? I mean, it's, it's iconic. And what's fascinating is that the most famous scenes in that film came about because the mechanical shark that Steven Spielberg wanted to use, it did not work. So now he's got the constraint of being over budget. He's behind schedule. He doesn't have a shark that will work. And so what does he do? He decides to shoot all of the scenes from the shark's point of view, and he lets the music, and I can guarantee that every single person on the podcast that's listening, they can hum that music in their head, and he <laughs> lets the imagination, you can probably sing it right, Brian, if yes. you want to, um, and but you're not going to, I can tell, and then let our imagination do the rest, and so that's the power of a constraint. Another one that I think is fascinating, actually, I'm going to tell you two more just to really drive this point home, is um, there was this postmortem done of 200 failed startups. And they looked at, they divided it into funded startups and unfunded startups. And the number one reason that the funded startups went under, the ones that were able to go out and raise capital from third parties, the number one reason they went out of business was that they ran out of cash. They ran out of money. And it was for the people who had had to bootstrap, the people who had to prioritize, who had constraints, it was only the number 10 reason. Wow. Fascinating to me. And then the third story, which I love so much, is skateboarders. They're some of the quickest learners in the world. Think about, we just saw the Olympics. You've got all these snowboarders, quickest learners in the world because they receive incredibly fast and incredibly useful feedback. And so then the question becomes when we're thinking about our people that work for us or ourselves, we're trying to climb a curve. Um, are we successful in spite of, or because of our constraints? And so this is the paradox of we need constraints, we need challenges, we need stretch assignments in order for us to successfully climb a learning curve. 
Yeah, what a fascinating question. Are we successful in spite of or because of our constraints? Where I know um, for myself, I often wish some of the challenges I had, I didn't have, <laughs> right? But this allows such a, a wonderful perspective and, and, and even invites us to explore our challenges with gratitude. Right, and, and, and the thing is, Brian, is, is when we are willing to take a moment of in- introspection or many moments of introspection, every great thing that we do in our lives, I would argue, was made possible, brought to you by a constraint. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Where have you seen that in your own life? Oh, um, yeah, great question. So I can't believe you're asking me this, but yeah, so I mean, it's okay <laughs> that you're asking me. So I think one constraint that I had growing up is my, um, my parents, they, uh, my mom got pregnant, and so they got married. And she wasn't happy being married to my dad. And so I think at many levels, you know, inside that DNA and inside the womb, there was a sense of, I better make up for how terrible her life is. You know, I needed to be good enough to make, make sure that, you know, it would make it all be okay. And so I had this sense, you know, from really all my childhood mm-hmm. is that I wasn't good enough. Like I'm not good enough and I need to, I was internalizing this. And so I needed to be better. And I would really credit the fact that I am so driven um, to to succeed, to accomplish, to make things happen because of that experience that I had. You know, that wasn't yeah. fair to me that it was like that, but it was. And, um, and now, of course, as an adult, it's up to me to make sure that I can take the, you know, discard the bad that comes with that, and then just continue to leverage the good. And I think, you know, I'm finally old enough that I'm really starting to do that is to take all of that drive that I have to make a difference and make things happen and channel it in very positive ways. But that's a big constraint, a big constraint. Yeah, I can see that. And you are one of the most driven people I know. <laughs> interesting, really? So. That's interesting. Yeah, which I think is awesome yeah. that you know, all my interactions with you, as I've gotten to know you a bit over the last year, one of the things I love is I do think you're real and you're present, yet you're very, um, you're very clear. I mean, you live, it seems to me you're on a mission, right? I mean, you've, you've written your message. As I look back at your Ted talks, nearly a decade, you've been sharing the same essential message about disruption Mm -hmm. and looking at how this can not, again, not just be a theory, not just be some kind of organizational, you know, concept, but it can be something that we apply in our own lives to improve them. And I think, I think that's really cool. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to transition now to this lightning round of oh, questions. Okay. <laughs> so this is kind of the, the halfway point. Okay. And what I have here is it's about 10 questions. Okay. I've written these so that they can be answered briefly. You could take as many words as you want, but um, we'll start with a single, if you can, a single word response to the following question with, without using like a box of chocolates, right? complete the following sentence life is like a blank a merry-go-round oh love it why do you say that by the way i'm gonna say the words that come into my head first okay it's like a rorschach test right yeah um the the thought that i had when i when you asked me that was a merry-go-round um yes it goes around um but a couple, I think a couple of free association. One is that it's, it's a happy moment being on a merry-go-round. It's exciting. It's fun. Um, I, I thought of the word merry that, you know, it's, it, as we go around, it is a merry time. And then I also thought of how I remember when I was young, we would go to the Santa Cruz board rock and, boardwalk and you'd pull out these brass rings and you try to throw it into a thing. And I've always cared about the brass ring for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so a mer- life is like a merry-go-round. I love it. Awesome. And merry-go-rounds have ups and downs. <laughs> yes, they do. Great. Okay. Uh, number two, what do you wish you were better at? Jazz piano. Hmm. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quip or a quote, what would it say? Learn 
Leap, repeat. Mm. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted most often? Born Rich by Bob Proctor. Mm. All right, number five. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, you know, something you do or maybe something you take with you when you travel that makes your travel less painful or more enjoyable? A favorite piece of fiction, um, a book that I'm reading that, uh, oh, I, oh, sorry, I went too long. No, no, a no. book, a fi- fiction. <laughs> fiction. <laughs> you can answer as long as long. I, I can, I can elaborate. Yeah. So, um, so I, I love to travel. I love my travel for work. Um, but I also like to be able to feel grounded and not necessarily feel homesick. And so being able to carry a piece of fiction with me that carries me away, it becomes just a companion for me that I can, I may not read it very much, but I certainly read at night. And so I like to have a piece of fiction. What's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Um, meditating. Good for you. I've started meditating. That's great. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? That's a gimme. How to disrupt themselves. <laughs> um, actually, um, I wish people knew um, that, at, at that, yeah, how to disrupt themselves, but at the, that at the core that we, we are, um, and I know I'm channeling Brene Brown a little bit, but at the core we are worthy Um irrespective. And I love this quote from Zig Ziglar, failure is an event, not a person. I wish everybody not only said that or saw that in their head, but they believed that to the core of their soul. Yeah. It's a much more empowering perspective than I think what many people believe for sure. All right. Number eight, what advice have your parents given you that has made an impact on you or has stayed with you? (laughs) So this is interesting. The one that came to my mind, and I think it's best to just say what comes to your mind. So it's interesting. My dad was a bit of a philanderer, not a bit. He was a philanderer. And I remember um, him saying to me uh, fairly early in my career when I was traveling a lot, he said something to me like, make sure you stay faithful to your husband. And I thought that was, and that stayed with me because it was so not what he had done. And, um, and I have stayed faithful to my husband. Um, but that advice has stayed with me, I think, because I think in part, because I think so often, and this goes back to what I just said a minute ago, we know in our brain what to do, but we our subconscious is so often so wired differently. And so we don't, we don't do what we know to do. And so that advice has really stayed with me. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That makes me think of when I was writing Behind the Drive and I was collecting stories from others about my dad, there was more than one person that shared with me the advice he had given them to be a present parent. And so it is kind of, there's this power in somebody who's lived one way, giving advice contrary to the way they lived, right? It's like, it's kind of mind, mind bending. Yes. But. Right. And it stays with you because you realize there's this wonderful quote um, from uh, Brandon Sanderson, who says, um, sometimes hypocrisy is just people in the process of trying to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true, or, or certainly that want to change or want to be other than yeah, they are. That's, that's a very generous perspective. I, I really like that. And I love Brandon Sanderson. He's awesome. amazing the third book in the way of kings myself right now me too that's what i'm reading right now (laughs) that's what i carry with me on my business trips at the moment and i'm like stringing it out as long as i as possible so anyway he's he's amazing yeah he's great do you know him by the way i do not i I do not and it's okay but he's amazing (laughs) cool what he's based here in utah i think yeah he is yeah we'll just be his fan club fan club of Two among a million. Cool. Okay. Number nine. What's your next? I know you're just in riding the wave of building a team still. So this one might be a little premature, but what's your next big project? What's on the horizon? 
Uh, no, it's not premature. So um, my next big project right now is to take the ideas and build an A-team and disrupt yourself and turn them into a course that people can use, um, some type of course. I don't know what it will look like, but that's my next big project that I've got to sort through over the next six months. Awesome. If people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what should they do? Mm. Um, so I would say if people are interested in doing, um, seeing where they are in their learning curve, you can go to my website, whitneyjohnson.com forward slash diagnostics. So that's one way to connect or to, to know each other more. Um, another way, uh, would be to listen to my podcast, the disrupt yourself podcast, cause that gives you an idea of how I think. Um, and then if you beyond this conversation that we're having, obviously, Brian, and then um, if you want to reach out to me directly, um, you can email me at wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Awesome. As a way of expressing my gratitude to you for devoting some of your time talking to me and, and uh, our listeners here, I've made a $100 loan through kiva.org on your behalf to a woman in Lebanon Aww. named yeah, and she'll use this money. It's part of a $2,000 loan that she's raising to help pay the tuition for her children. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Brian. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Will you include in the show notes um, who the person um, is so that I can just track who she is? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. She's got a, I believe she be has lovely. a third grader and a kindergartner. So that's pretty cool. Mm, mm. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I want to shift gears. Uh, again, and with the, our, our last uh, portion of time, talk about the creative process and talk about specifically the book writing process. But knowing that you, you have a podcast, knowing you've done multiple TED Talks, maybe venture into that a little bit. Um, but I want to start. The first thing I'm really curious to know is now that you've written three books, I'm, I want to know how has the process of writing changed for you or how has it stayed the same? Okay. So I would say the one way it stayed the same is that, um, I, I continue to think, okay, I want to write about something that has grabbed me, um, that I have to write about and I want to know about, and I am passionate about, and that I feel like I have something unique to say about that topic, um, where I can be the world expert on that topic. So that, that has been consistent throughout. Um, I think though, something that has been different is that, and this is not surprising, Oh, no. Another thing that stayed the same is that is this realization that you don't write a book in isolation, that you need to have thought partners, you need to have good editors, um, people, you know, different kinds of editors. And we can go into, into that in a second if you want. Um, but it's not this solitary process that it's somehow made out to be. And you realize that when you read acknowledgments, but it's really not a solitary process. And I think that that's the other thing um, that would be the same. Um, the thing that's different is I think about the very first book that I wrote, uh, Dare, Dream, Do, which was in 2012. And um, I think if I remember reading after I wrote that book, someone said, you know, oftentimes people with their first books write books where they get stories from lots of different people. Um, and the reason that they do that is or essays or contributions is they do that is because they don't have confidence in their own voice. And I thought that was fascinating because on the one hand, with my first book, I did have like 50 different contributors and I wanted to do that because I wanted to give all of these people a voice and it was all women in, in this particular instance. But I do think that there was some element of I was still finding my voice and I don't think you ever find it actually. But I would say the thing that has been different is that I am increasingly confident in what I think. Um, and a willingness to say what I think and what I believe. And I still, and that's so important because I remember when I was working on Wall Street, very early on, I had just become an, an analyst and I was trying to decide, do I put a buy on the stock? Do I put a sell on it? What do I do? What should my rating be? And one of my colleagues said to me, stop being a shrinking violet. And I remember at the time, like I really did not know how to have an opinion like, I didn't know how to do that. And so I would say one of the biggest evolutions over the last 15 years, 
really, and certainly with this third book, is I'm getting increasingly confident and comfortable with having an opinion, um, having a view. And so that's the thing that's probably the biggest difference. So when you when you started your first book, you recall, how long did it take you from the time you conceived the book to the time it you finished the manuscript? Mm-hmm. Or And I'm interested to know the answer to that with Building yeah. 18 as well and kind of compare first to third. What's what's that timetable? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's an, at least for me, there's an evolutionary process because I first started the blog, I, I blog to blog um, in 2006. And um, is that right? Yeah, we're in 2000. Yeah, 2006. Um, <laughs> the years all start to compress like an accordion. Um, but 2006 and um, started, you know, trying to figure out what do I think. Um, and then about a year or two in, I had started having people guest blog. I think it was in 2009, someone approached me, um, uh, Laurel Christensen Day, um, who's at Desert Book, about writing a book. And so it took me from there about, I want to say, nine months to put a manuscript together, although I had a lot of these blog posts that I had written. So I had been kind of researching and thinking about this now for several years. Um, and then uh, we didn't end up publishing with Deseret Book. And so when the book finally came out, it was 2012. And so if you think about it from that st- standpoint, the kernel of, of what I wrote about started six years earlier. Um, once I actually had to do a manuscript, it was probably six to nine months, but then we set it aside for a year or six to nine months came back to it. So very much an iterative process over the course of, um, of several years. Um, so I wrote disrupt yourself that was published in 2015. And after I wrote that book, a lot of people started having the question of like, okay, well, I get that I need to disrupt myself, but how do you create an ecosystem, um, where that can be possible. And so the seeds of build an a team were planted then. Um, but in terms of the actual writing, and again, a team, good editors, um, we just published it now. We turned in the first draft of the manuscript in May of 2017. So from the, the intense writing period was probably about nine months. During that time, what does your writing schedule look like out? Long stretches? Do you oh. have a certain time of day? Like, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah. So, so the early stuff, um, when, when it's the first kind of getting something out on paper, it's early in the morning. Like that is the only time I can, cause it's the only time of the day where my anxiety is still a little bit quiet. <laughs> and later in the day, it's still, it's still, I like to think it's still asleep or it's certainly drowsy. Um, and so, um, early in the day and then what I have gotten really good at doing is, saying, okay, I'm going to write for a couple of hours, and then I'm going to hand it off to, um, to either a conceptual, usually at this stage, a conceptual editor, take a look at it, see if they can make sense of it, and kind of have a, have a, a back and forth with people so that I can keep the anxiety drowsy. And then when I get stuck, because it's really hard actually creating something, it's really hard. And so when you can get feedback and then continue to develop that, that's, that's the process that works for awesome. me. Do you have um, any rituals that you observe? You know, do you have certain slippers you wear or a certain beverage that you bring with you or you light a candle? Like any, is there anything you do as you're sitting down to write? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So, so actually I want to just add one thing that I think is important here is I, just to be clear, even though I've written three books, I don't self-identify as a writer. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Because writing for me is a tool to be able to get my ideas and what I think and to evangelize for what I care about out in the world. Unlike someone like a Susan Cain, who thinks of herself first and foremost as a writer, or Brandon Sanderson obviously thinks of himself as a writer, or even someone like Dan Pink. But I don't think of myself that way first and foremost. So just I think for people who are listening, that's an interesting question to be asking yourself. What role does writing actually play? Do you self-identify as a writer? which in some ways is good that I don't because then my perfectionism doesn't kick in the same way. But what role does the writing process play in your overall um, uh, portfolio of things that you're trying to get done? In terms of rituals, I would say um, I sit down at my computer. I have, I usually have a great big glass of of water. um, And then frequently, 
I shouldn't say this, but I'll get like a little <laughs> bit of candy to help me get started. And and I like to listen to um, this app called Focus at Will that has music because then it allows me to focus because otherwise my brain starts bouncing all over like I should do this, I should do that, I should do the other thing. And so it allows me to, to be calm. I'm not ADD, but I do get distracted. And so if I have something like Focus at Will, it allows me to, to actually focus. Yeah, I, I have just discovered Focus at Will in the last few months and I've loved, I've loved it. It's amazing. It is great. And, and, and the candy, by the way. The candy is the reward, Whitney. That's the <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Those Maybe it's a bookend. Yeah, beginning, M- beginning, and yeah, M and M's for the win, right? <laughs> That's awesome. What kind do you like? Oh, um, actually, what kind do I really love? Um, I love. Oh, actually, you know what I really, really love are the Cadbury mini eggs. Oh yeah, those are the best ever. Best ever. It's a good thing they only have them at Easter, um, but that's the kind I really like. Yeah, and the car I like the caramel M and M's. That's awesome. There's so many kinds nowadays. Yes, there are. Awesome. When you're writing, um, and by the way, what you said about not identifying as a writer makes me think about the distinction I once heard of the distinction between a writer and an author. Right, that there is a big difference between being an author and the author, in some ways, is more a producer who orchestrates. You know, they they envision it, they architect it, they bring the resources together, they see that it exists. Um, do you see that for yourself? Would you say yes, maybe? I mean, does absolutely. That feel- I've never heard. Yeah, I've never heard that definition, but that hundred percent. I think of myself absolutely as an author, not a writer. Interesting. And it just sounds like maybe you get to wear a jacket and you know <laughs> something too. If you're, I'm an author. That's great. Cool. So I'm an when, author. when you're writing, how clear are you of who your audience is? I mean, I, we know this is like writing advice 101, right? Know your audience. And what I wonder is, as you write, who are you writing for? And how clear are you that you're writing for someone? And even do you have sometimes a specific person or a kind of avatar that you're writing toward? I mean, how does that happen for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say with Dare Dream Do, my, yeah, I was really clear on my audience. It was, I wanted to, it was like I was handing someone a cup of hot chocolate. Um, My audience was women. Um, my audience was women in particular who were having the tension of, of wanting to be mothers and care for family and, and loved ones and also have a career. And what does that look like? And really building a case for why it was important to have a dream because I met so many women who were not actually believing it was their privilege and birthright to dream. So that was my audience for that book. Very clear. Disrupt Yourself, my audience... Um, I, I would say of the three, it was probably the least clear. I knew I had this idea. I wanted to encourage people to be um, to have a framework for knowing how to make a, a change. Um, it was more probably more B to C um, business to consumer, not yeah business to consumer of just widespread anybody who was feeling like I need to make a change, whether it's a college student, whether it's someone in their 60s, um, regardless of what stage they are in life. Um, With Build an A-Team, my audience has been very clear of talking to um, C-suite executives, whether they're CEOs, chief human resource officers, um, uh, learning and development officers, with the idea that if you will um, apply these ideas inside of your organization, it will allow you to retain talent. It will allow you to manage through change better. It will allow you to avoid being disruptive if you will allow the people on your team to manage their learning curves and here's how you do it. So I would say of the two, you know, dare, dream, do, build an A team, clear on the audience, um, disrupt yourself more the framework, broader application, not as clear on on the audience other than the avatar being a person who's feeling like I need to make a change and I don't know how to do it. Awesome. What is for you, what's the most rewarding part of writing books? Being done with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, uh, a couple of things. I, I think one part of it is, and I, you know, I've said that tongue in cheek, but there's some truth to it. Um, I would say uh, being able to get these ideas out of your head and onto a piece of paper and the challenge of being able to codify what you think and say it in a really clear way so that when someone reads it, they get it. And then when you hear someone talking about it, your idea, and it now has become their idea, that's really rewarding because you're like, I, 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 I put something into the world and now someone is 
sharing it. I'm sharing it with them and it's theirs too. And then they're creating something with it. So that's super, super rewarding. Yeah. That's awesome. So I heard you say that you, after you started blogging, um, is it Laurel? Laurel reached out to you to write a book. Actually, kind of she did. Do you want the bigger story? Because I think this is interesting. Yeah. I mean, especially like, I'm so curious, how did you go and how could one maybe follow the same path you did to get, you know, recognized to get, you know, the opportunity, right? Yeah. So I I think, well, here's what else. I'll tell you my story quickly, because I'm not sure that it applies to most people. And so and then I'll talk through what now tends to happen is. So in this particular instance, I had reached out through a friend of a friend, um, shout out to David Burkus's book, um, to um, uh, reach out to this to, to Laurel Christensen Day, who runs this big seminar series or did called Time Out for Women. And I had this friend, Macy Robinson, who had just done this cabaret act um, called Children Will Listen, and said to Laurel, you, sh- you need to bring her in because it's a really great cabaret act. So I was actually, and I, as her friend, like I wasn't her agent, I was just like, this is fantastic, you should do it. Because I tend to sometimes do that with people's dreams as I like, you have to do this <laughs> thing. So, so I did it. And in the process of having that conversation with Laurel, she said, well, can you just tell, like, first of all, what's your, what's your game here? And I was like, there isn't a game. And then she said, well, you're kind of interesting. Tell me about you. And as we got acquainted, then she asked me if I was interested in writing a book. So that was an unusual thing. Although I would say that in many instances for people, sometimes things do happen that are positive for you when you are in the process of advocating for other people. Not always, but sometimes. Um, In terms of the process more generally, I would say that typically you do need to have an agent. I would not, and and I wouldn't um, just blind query agents because you're never going to get an agent. Um, You've got to use your network. And, you know, nowadays we all know, like, Everybody who's listening to this knows someone who has written a book, like, because everybody writes books. And so what I would say to you is you reach out to your friends and say, I have a book proposal, assuming that you do, you need to get a book proposal. Um, who do you know that are agents? Can you introduce me? Like, that is how you have to do it. Otherwise, it's like banging your head against the wall. And then once you get an agent, then they will help sell your book unless you want to go the self-publishing route, which is becoming increasingly um, legitimate. Michael Bungay Stanier, he wrote this fantastic piece, and I would definitely put it in the show notes, Brian, about how you can self-publish. And he did, and he sold hundreds of thousands of books. Of course, he's a bit of a unicorn, but there are ways to do it. And it comes to a bigger question, which is when you write a book, what job are you hiring your book to do? Mm. Because depending on the job you're hiring your book to do, it may make sense to self-publish. It may make absolutely no sense to self-publish. But depending on the job you want to hire it to do, then you can start to make decisions about which route you want to go, what kind of agent you want and need, et cetera. And talking about Michael Bungay Stinger, I loved your interview with him. By the way, he was he was so honest. <laughs> You know, and then that, He's great. That, that piece he wrote about how he self-published and has sold more than 300,000 copies now is, is pretty remarkable. It is. Um, earlier talking about books here, you said something like, I don't think we ever find our voice. So, something like mm-hmm. that, like, right? Which is often um, writers are told, no, just keep writing. You'll find your voice. You know, will you will you say just a little bit more about that? Well, I, the reason I said it, I mean, it's kind of like the learning curve. I, I think if you, if you feel like you've found your voice, you become a master and then that apply that implies a status quo. And then that implies that you're not changing at all. Um, and so, so I would say, yes, I've found my voice, but if, if, if 10 years from now, um, when I'm on my seventh book or eighth book and I sound the same, uh, then as I do now, then that would suggest that I haven't grown at all. And so that's what I think. I think if you're lucky, you never completely find your voice. Um, but that means you're continually learning, which goes back to what I said at the very beginning, which is the whole purpose of our life is to learn like we are learning machines. Yeah. And when we're learning, um, that means we're also continually finding our voice. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. What advice do you have for people who are working to get their first book done or maybe their next book done? If you were to give them a piece of advice or encouragement, what what do you say? 
Um, well, I have a couple pieces. I, I would say one is write about what you know and you care deeply about and you want to be wedded to for several years because you will be wedded to it. And so that would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice would be um, write a really good book proposal and find someone who can work with you on writing that really good pr- book proposal. And third, which kind of goes to the second piece, is don't expect yourself to write this um, in a vacuum. Get good editors. Find people who you know are basically like a coach to you where you write stuff and they give you feedback um, so that you are not doing this as a solitary process because it, I don't think it's meant to be a solitary process. So those um, would be my three pieces of advice. Okay. How can people... Oh, and my fourth yeah. one is start writing. <laughs> it's so basic. Just start writing. <laughs> I know. Start writing. Yeah. Okay. The journey of a thousand, a thousand miles, right? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How can people find good collaborators? How do they know? Um, I think it's the same as what I said about the agent. Um, you just start asking around. I, I think it's amazing how once you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to write a book. And I need um, some, I I think I need a good editor. You just start asking everybody you know who's ever written a book and ask them about the process, like who who have you worked with? So for example, I have had an editor, um, shout out to Amy Jamison, who I have worked with on all three of my books, who is alternates between being a conceptual editor and also um, a line editor on this most recent book, I worked with a woman named Heather Hunt, who is also a fantastic editor and writer. And so we actually kind of ping pong back and before back and forth between the three of us. And that was before I even sent it to my editor at Harvard Business Press, which is Sarah Green. And then there was two different line editors there. That's what I mean. This is not a solitary process. It's just like a film. It's not one person. It's hundreds of people, maybe not with a book, hundreds of people, but you get the point. Yeah. Maybe by the time, you know, distribution and marketing and you know, that kind of stuff. It's a big, it's a team effort. That's right. Okay. And then I do want to be sure to ask, you mentioned focus at will as an app and you mentioned headspace as a writer, as you go to write um, and organize your ideas and communicate them. Are there any softwares or any tools that you have found helpful also that others might in their effort to do the same thing? Um, uh, uh, Google, other than Google Docs, no. I just use Google Docs so I can share the docs. Um, I know there are programs out there, but I don't, I don't use them. I just use Google okay. Docs. Cool. All right. Well, that's everything I have. I, I know as soon as we disconnect, I'll probably have the six more questions, the perfect questions. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I appreciate what you've shared today. I, I've had a lot of fun. I believe people listening to this will get a lot of benefit from it. So again, uh, as I began, I want to thank you for making time to talk with me today. And uh, just wish you all the best with your new book and your new program that you're creating. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.